Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. I talked to our daughter, Catherine, this week. Sherry? That's good. Yeah, she's doing well. <laughs> and we talked about the developing story. Which is, of course, as you know, the leading, the reading, the leading group she's reading, the re, the writing group she is leading for teens who have experienced alcoholism in their household. She gives a prompt. They do some writing. They read to each other. It's a, a great, you know, intervention way to process traumatic experiences. And it is for teenagers. That's why our 21-year-old daughter is leading it instead of cranky and crotchety old you and me. Boy, I mean, I don't mind if I call myself old and crotchety <laughs> and cranky, but when you do it, it seems to sting a little more. That doesn't seem very nice, does it? <laughs> yeah. Well, Catherine is neither of those things because she's young and vibrant. And uh, we were talking about the fact that we've had a lot of people express interest in the group. And we've had a, a good number of people that have gone through the first step of the enrollment, but we've had very few people come all the way across the finish line and join us. So on Monday, November 6th, from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. in the Mountain Time Zone, so that would be 6.30 on the East Coast and 3.30 on the West Coast, I guess I should give Chicago to 5.30 in the central time zone. I don't know why I said Chicago, but 5.30 central. Um, we are going to open it up to anyone who hasn't necessarily gone all the way through the enrollment process, but just has expressed interest. So if you and your teen are interested in potentially checking us out and seeing what the developing story is all about, we invite you to join us. The way to to do that joining of us for that day, to get the Zoom link basically and be invited, is to just take the very first step in enrollment. So what you do is you go to thedevelopingstory.org, thedevelopingstory.org, read through what the program's about. At the very bottom, there is an enrollment form. It's basically just giving us your name and email address to express interest. And so anyone who we have gathered their name and email address through that form, we will send the Zoom link for Monday, November 6th, 4.30 to 5.30 Mountain Time Zone, and you'll be invited to check it out. You won't be forced to read out loud. You won't be forced to do anything. You can just sit in the shadows and kind of listen and get a feel for it if you'd like. But uh, normally it's just Catherine on those calls from our side of it. But I know I'll be on there with her this time because we're opening it up and I just wanna I wanna see what how it goes with, with people that we haven't gotten fully through the process. I wanna be there to support Catherine and just watch her work. I'm excited. Me too. Yeah. Should be good. Yeah. Okay. So if you're interested, go to the developingstory.org, express that first little bit of interest. And we'll make sure that you get invited to that call. We've got a listener question today, Sherry. Alrighty. It's There's a little bit of background, so it's a little bit long. So bear with me. My adult kids, both my son and daughter, 
feel so much hurt and resentment unresolved and unaddressed toward their alcoholic father, who is now in long-term sobriety. We've been separated now for years, and my kids do not want to see me reconcile with him. My kids are very important to me. How can I think about going back with this playing in the background? It's a tough one. Yeah, it is tough. The the parents, the this married couple, uh, are getting to a better place. The alcoholic's been sober for a while, and I know because I, I know even more than what I shared there. I know that the the sober drinker is very, very interested in reconciliation, and his wife, you know, is willing to consider it. And she still loves her husband. She wants the best for him. But she's got the her children who are just in so much pain and they don't want, want to see this happen. And uh, what a tough position to put uh, this woman in. I mean, nobody's doing it on purpose. Everyone's right. doing their best. But I, I want to hear from you because I think that nurturing instinct that we've talked about, we've talked about that there are gender components here. I think that Fathers and mothers have different reactions, different relationships, different innate pulls as it relates to child raising and their and their kids. And I can imagine that she just feels like prioritizing the feelings and emotions of her kids, even though they're adults, is so high on her priority list that how could she possibly do this? What do you think as a possessor of those nurturing components? Yeah, that that's tough because you mentioned that the children are adults. And it sounds to me like there has been no work done from those adults, young adults, older adults. How, and I don't even know. Like going to their own therapy yeah, or something? Yeah, going to their own therapy, having conversations, having family meetings, um, opening it up. To have an open, honest conversation, but also, um, you know, being able to express what they're feeling, but not being resentful. Because um, I know that, you know, with our oldest, some of the the hurt and the pain that we caused, you know, we've apologized for, but it's her responsibility to get healthy. Mm-hmm. We can't force her. To see a therapist and get healthy. So, but I kind of, it makes me kind of think of a family member of mine. And just to clarify on that, and she is. And she she is. She isn't, you know, there's no resistance there. She's doing the work and... And uh, And facing it. Yeah, and and we're very proud of all the work that she's doing. Yeah, so, but we could, you know, we can't force that on them. You're right. And so you can't change their mind, but then... And then you got to think about long term for this woman who wants to be with her husband who never intended this to happen it's a disease we don't plan for this but her happiness has to count for something and if it's going to make her happy then and in the long term because she can't spend her life alone and she doesn't want to spend her life alone you know I hate to see estrangement in families over situations like this but I would really hope that, 
maybe the woman could say, you know, before I reconcile with your father, you know, we're going, I would like for you to start seeing some counselors start working on this and, and work through your resentment process. And then hopefully the sober partner will come along. And I think just the more education you get about, you know, the disease is going to help. I know we have a family member who is in relationship with somebody that was not well received early on because of the way the relationship started. But now over time, things have worked out and they see their parent be happy in a relationship that is healthy. So I'm really just hoping the best for this, but I think that that would be the hardest is, is to see their kids be resentful and be, I don't want to say selfish, but maybe worried about a relapse and hold on to some of the past. I remember when I was coming up on a couple of years sober and you and I were trying to work on our relationship and it wasn't going particularly well and we were spinning our wheels mostly and you reinforced several times that it was important that we talk to the kids and that we work with the kids and that we understand their pain and where they were coming from. And I thought, okay, I said, fine, let's do that. But I was doing it just to appease you. I didn't think there was much there. I didn't think that they held much resentment and anger because they didn't talk or act like they did. But little did I know, they were just avoiding confrontation and hiding from me how they really felt. And so when we did address it with them, um, you know, a lot came out and it was painful and awful, but also therapeutic and necessary. And I bring that up because I wonder in this situation if that isn't the right next move. I agree with you that they're adults and that they should probably seek therapy and that there's some serious stuff that they need to work through. But I wonder if the wife in this scenario, the the woman who asked the question, can't encourage her sober husband just like you did with me and say, hey, you need to bridge this gap with your kids. You need to go and address this and hear them out. And if they want to yell at you, you need to to take it and and, you know, be accepting that their opinion is valid. And if they want to you know, do real resentment processing, then you, you need to be prepared to do that. And just make it clear to her husband that this is important, not just for the health of the kids, but because she has these mothering instincts and her kids are so important to her, that this is important for her. Because I think, you know, I think that would be like kind of a double whammy. If I'm putting myself in the position of this sober man. If my wife told me, not only do I need you to do this because this is healthy for your kids, but I also need you to do this because this is a, a, you know, a necessity basically for me to be able to move forward. I would look at that and say, gosh, my whole family needs this. Everybody needs this. So no matter how bad it's going to be, no matter how much it's going to hurt, um, I got to do it because my family needs me. And so I would just think that would be a lot of um, incentive. Not just, not just, oh, I get to move back in with my wife if I do this thing. But everybody in my family needs me and I got to step up. Because yeah. I, I was the sick one who wasn't stepping up for 
whatever long period of time. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I mean, like, the whole family needs to come on board. And I think even even after that, I mean, you know, while the conversation's going, I think therapy would be very beneficial for them to work out some of those worries and concerns because sometimes, you know, if they're adult children and then just math is going to say, like, there's going to be an aging process. And sometimes we don't, as young adults or older adults, we don't want to worry our parents with maybe some things that we're thinking you know, there have been things that I talked to my therapist about from my past that I never brought up to my mom, things that happened in my childhood, because I didn't want to make them feel, her to feel bad or worried. So I think it'll just help them as adults be healthier adults and be able to process some of the things they grew up with that maybe they might be a little bit worried to say, or the therapist can help them formulate a plan on how to approach a certain situation. Yeah. Um, having professional involved sounds yeah. very appropriate here. Yeah, because I think they want the best for their mother. Yeah. That's for sure. But they'll be busy with their own lives. Yeah. One more thing I want to add, just because I know this situation really well. I know in the past, they have had periods of sobriety and separation, and then they've reconciled, and he has started drinking again. And I know one of her big concerns is... That if she gets back together with him, he'll get comfortable and he'll start drinking again. Ah. And so I think this kind of, I don't know, strategy that we're talking about might help alleviate concerns in that regard as well. Because she's not just giving him a free pass and saying, oh, okay, you've been sober for a while now, you can come back. She's saying, there is a hurdle that needs to be overcome. There's work that needs to be done. This is important. This is not... And, and, you know, just to kind of drive this home, this is not just for the kids and this is not just for the wife. This is for him, too. I mean, because as we talk about a lot and we're going to talk about in a few minutes here, the cornerstone of recovery is self-esteem. We do better and stay sober and get healthier when we feel better about ourselves and we rid ourselves of the shame cycle and get away from the guilt. And so while this what we're talking about, this reconciliation process with his kids, will be ridiculously hard, I'm imagining. They might resist it altogether at first. Mm-hmm. It is the kind of work of recovery that makes you feel good about yourself. I'm saying, listen, I tried really hard. I reconnected with some people that didn't want anything to do with me. Um, and that's the kind of thing... That can build self-esteem, the kind of self-esteem that can help you stay sober, even if you return to a familial environment where in the past you said, oh, I'm comfortable again, I'm going to drink. So um, I think there's like, you know, half a dozen benefits to this approach, not, you know, not just one siloed thing. I think this helps in a whole bunch of ways. So I'm rooting for both of them. Yeah. I, well, not just both of them. I'm rooting for the kids, too. I'm rooting for all of them. Hope it goes well. Maybe we'll maybe we'll be able to give an update someday. Yes. We'll see. So, Sherry, uh, in active addiction, I prioritized alcohol. I never would have admitted it at the time. I always said my family came first. I believed my family came first. It wasn't like I was lying to you. I just believed it. I couldn't see the degree to which my decision-making and the way I spent my time was all, you know, 
focused on alcohol. We've talked about this before, but like on the rare occasion that we go out to eat, because we never do, uh, the place had to have a liquor license because I wasn't going to eat someplace where I couldn't get a beer. Um, you know, the schedule was often built around uh, we got to be home during the times when I normally like to drink. So, you know, if we're going to do something, if we're going to go for a hike, for instance, let's go in the morning so that by the afternoon I'm home uh, on the couch drinking. So even though I couldn't admit it, the truth is, and it's obvious, that alcohol was the priority in my life and you and the kids were prioritized behind alcohol. That's painful to admit even now after all these years of sobriety. Um, in, in early sobriety, my recovery work became the priority. Again, never would have admitted at the time, never could see it at the time, but in order to stay sober, I had to run a million miles an hour toward sobriety and I had to learn a bunch of stuff and read a bunch of stuff and work on recovery nutrition and and exercising and learning how to deal with emotions and doing all the things and so in early sobriety you and the kids still weren't top priority my recovery work was top priority you agree with everything I've said so far yes anything dad <laughs> See, people crack on me for talking too much, but sometimes I throw it throw it your way and you're like, yep, what else you got over there? I know it's, uh, it's we have to admit to our listeners, it is early. We have a uh, jam-packed day and so we are talking way before you normally talk at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think. I think that you're explaining it very well, but there's also, there's no way to explain the emotional piece that comes with it. Ooh. Like, there what was... What do you mean? Well, you know, the the known but unspoken, like, rule about getting home so Dad can have his drinking time. And, yeah. That was unspoken, you're and, right. But did you know it, too? I did. I mean, yeah. I picked it up. I figured it out. Yeah. You know? I mean, it was, like, real obvious. Like, and the kids even kind of learned that. Um, like, if I wouldn't... I, I can only think of, like, Chuck E. Cheese or something like that. We didn't do that. But if it was, like, a fun, you know, place the kids wanted to go for lunch that maybe didn't have alcohol. Actually, I'll choose one of my favorite places, the hot dog, a hot dog stand. Yeah. The place that we go to. Um, you know, our Mother's Day tradition. Yeah, Chicago style. Maybe that's why sure. I ended up like doing it because oh, like they it didn't serve, serve beer, and then I felt like you couldn't take it and ruin it because it was Mother's Day. Yeah, it still is. We still do it on Mother's yeah, Day. Yeah, we still do even in sobriety. I never thought about that. You're I didn't probably either. Right. I probably didn't either. But even if the kids wanted to do something or I saw something, you know, you'd be like, no, you know, and. And so we all just kind of bowed down to whatever you were willing to tolerate. And then that's how I felt like it was, what you were willing to tolerate. Mm. So. That definitely would make you feel like you're not top priority. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Then then in uh, longer term sobriety, so we've talked about active addiction and early sobriety. In longer term sobriety... We tend to, I tended to, 
prioritize being right. Let me explain. You're still not the top priority. Let me tell you about all that I'm learning. Let me tell you what I read about brain chemistry, Sherry. Let me tell you what I read about how addiction took place for me and and what happened and what I've got to do to recover. Let me kind of be a know-it-all and come at you with all of this stuff. Now, by the time I got sober, you were well detached from me. You emotionally had no gas left in the tank to listen to my next plan or my next thing or what I've just learned or this book I just read. You didn't really have any any time for that anymore. But I didn't stop me from talking, as I'm sure will surprise nobody. I was still coming at you with what I'd learned. And the part that through our work with Catherine and the podcast episode 200 and 201 that we did that focused on Catherine's experience, our oldest daughter, I kind of took a trip down memory lane through those two podcasts and recall that I was that way with the kids too. Hey kids, before we had a really an honest sit down and I listened to the kids before we did that very early on in my sobriety, I did, hey kids, let me tell you how brain chemistry of addiction works. Let me tell you what your father has been through. Let me tell you, woe is me about all the ways that I've suffered and all the ways that I've overcome because I'm a champion, because I'm a hero. And I look back on that now and I know, well, Catherine validated it. I know that they just sat there and rolled their eyes and didn't say anything and nodded their head just to get it over with. Me, you know, being right. Me prioritizing being this guy who had learned all this stuff and let me, let me be the father figure. Let me explain it all to you. I'm sure that was agonizing for them to sit here and look at this guy, me, who had just created all this chaos and turmoil in our lives and then have me jump up on the old soapbox and tell them all about it when they had their own lived experiences that at that point didn't have any oxygen, didn't have any room to be expressed. You also, in your addiction days, you also were on a soapbox a lot. Like, you didn't... You didn't receive others' opinions very well at all. You didn't let them try to work out and verbally, you know, process something. You had to kind of jump in and tell them how, you know, how the government works, how this works, how, you know, instead of letting them trying to decipher what they're learning in school and verbally processing and sharing and, and kind of having a conversation about it, you were kind of shutting them down a little bit. So... They're also looking at you like, oh, here's just one more thing that he's just going to rant about. Yeah. And and then I'm still going to formulate my own opinions because I still have life to live. Yeah. Yeah, I was a real peach, wasn't I? <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Um, so the authoritarianism, the residual arrogance, I believe that that comes from low self-esteem. I believe that I was insecure in many ways. I was, even though I was sober and, you know, got kind of past the early stages of sobriety, I still had very low self-esteem and was still in a bit of a shame cycle and felt guilt about the way I had behaved. And so the way to deal with that for me and frankly 
for a lot of people, this is definitely a universalism, is to come across as an authority figure and a bit of a know-it-all about various topics. And you're right, it didn't, it extended far beyond what I had learned about alcoholism. It was the stuff that I had always felt strong opinions about, politics and government and whatever, the way, the way the kids should behave out in public and um, show respect for, you know, people and stuff like that, right? So it wasn't all bad stuff. Yeah. But it just... But it could also be, like, the smallest. Like, I laugh when I think about, like, safety regulations on on indie cars, like, because the Indianapolis 500 was something we always did as a family, and when things would come out, and if the kids, like, sided with something that you didn't agree with, there was, like, the whole, like, banter of why that was just too many safety regulations and ridiculous and too many rules and blah, 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 you know. Talking about the time when that guy died? No. I mean, it could just be, I'm just saying, it could be about anything or, or like the way the parking lot is set up now, like how it's all wrong. Like, is, if you didn't agree with it, then, and someone else did, then, and it could be something small too. That's exactly right. I mean, I think you're driving home this point when you feel, when you have low self-esteem and you feel insecure you want to win every argument. You want to, you know, it, it wasn't enough for me to have an opinion and allow space for others to have an opinion, especially others that I was, not that I owned. I mean, you don't own raising. your kids, but raising, good word, much better than owned. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's not enough for me to have an opinion and let them have their opinion. It's, you know, I felt this uh, pull to have an opinion and make their opinion my opinion or make my opinion their opinion. It's the, that's the more obnoxious way to say that. Mm-hmm. And so it's disgusting and it's awful and it's super common. And it all comes again from low self-esteem because I feel so bad about myself. I've got to win and I've got to prove even to my family that I'm smart and that I'm right. And so this, you know, this insecurity driven, um, way of approaching and, uh, you know, telling people, telling my family what was right. You know, that applied to certainly parenting that applied to finances. I know Sherry, we've talked lots of times about how terrified you would be to bring a big expense to me. Like if one of the kids needed braces or, um, you know, a new bike. Yeah. A new bicycle. Just stuff. Just stuff. That would be hard to talk about because you knew I was going to, I mean, if I agreed with it, then it would be smoother. But if I didn't, then I would have all kinds of things to say and try to convince you that I was right. Um, you know, it also falling into this category, category, this authoritarianism, this residual arrogance was I was really good at telling you how to support me too, right? I had little or no understanding of what you had been through. This is early on enough that I didn't realize that you needed or deserved recovery. I didn't, you know, weigh the trauma that you'd been through or the walking on eggshells, the dysregulated nervous system, all of that. None of that kind of factored into my thinking. But what did factor into my thinking is I'm trying to do this really hard thing of getting and staying sober. So let me tell you what you can do to support me. You know, from from as simple as 
every evening I need to be left alone while I'm reading my quitlet and trying to get through the witching hour and stay stay sober. So you need to you everyone needs to give me time and space to do that to um, let me tell you what I need uh, in the bedroom. Let me tell you what I need um, as far as you know how the weekend's got to go because I got to do all these things to avoid these triggers of alcohol. So um, I was very good at telling you how you could support me, um, which, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I just let you support me the way that was most comfortable for you? You got a funny look on your face. What are you thinking? What are you thinking over there? Well, I just, I remember times when, you know, I would just be going about life normally. Like I would approach you about things in your, and, and maybe these weren't this last, sobriety um but like times before when you had like six months or nine months under your belt and I would just bring something to your attention and I would kind of you know and it would start to be tense and an argument and I might spit back and then you'd always be like how are you you know you would get so upset how are you going to support me being like this you know it's like you wanted me just to cave to um you at every whim and I think this time in sobriety because we had practiced that and you had kind of educated me to continue to read you were able to let me and maybe it was because I was detached too you were a little bit more understanding that I'm still going to approach you about some things most of the time I did leave you alone during those witching hour times but I don't feel like you were nearly as you were telling me this time, whereas the times before you weren't telling me, and then it would just become an argument. Does that make sense? I'm like kind of yeah. like, in my mind, it all makes sense. Like I have scenarios in my mind, but I don't want to like ex- you know tell these stories. But it would be like you're not giving me anything, and you're trying to act like life is normal, and so then I continue life as normal, and you're in a in a volatile mood, and then you spit back, whereas. This time in sobriety, because you had education behind it, you were a little bit more overt, for sure. But I felt like that was at least a little bit more helpful than kind of out of nowhere would be this reaction to something that was just normal everyday life. Yeah. Well. So it kind of just goes to show it sucks either way. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's quite a process. No, nothing has been more important to our relationship recovery and my long-term sobriety than the transition that I made at some point where I went from telling you what you were doing that was wrong. You know, when, when I talk about having this authoritarian kind of approach to things like parenting, let's stick on parenting, that would not only be, you know, me telling the kids all my beliefs and trying to convince them that I was right. It was also telling you the things that you were doing wrong. You you have very different relationships with our kids than I do. You give them choices um, way more than I do. You let them kind of find their own way and stub their own toes, whereas I try to keep them and protect them from stubbing their toes. And so this kind of authoritarian, low self-esteem, insecure approach of mine was not only... 
directly related to how I interacted with the kids. It was also me telling you how you needed to react to the kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all, and these other topics too, and finances and supporting me. And so there was no bigger transition, nothing more important than when I went from telling you what you were doing wrong and how you needed to change to when I started asking questions, why do you feel the way you do? Why do you act the way you do? And instead of that question being loaded and being like, why do you do it that way? You should do it this way. It became a genuine interest and concern and not even concern. That's not the right word. Interest and curiosity. So let's stick on parenting. You know, you have often gotten frustrated because the kids get sassy with you, for instance, more so than they do with me. And I would say, well, you need to stop, you know, giving them choices about, you know, whatever the thing might be. Oh, here's an idea. Here's one. You know, you will say, you know, you need to take a shower tonight. And they'll say, yeah. And then they'll go back to doing whatever they're doing. And then an hour later, you'll be like, you know, you need to take a shower. And they'll be like, yeah, I know. And then they'll go back to doing whatever they're doing. And then it's bedtime and they haven't showered. And you're like, uh, you needed to take a shower. And then they'll finally get in the shower and they'll gruff and huff about it. And so I would say to you, Sherry, Sherry, when it's before dinner and there's a half hour before dinner, just say, go take a shower. Not, you need to take a shower sometime tonight. Go take a shower right now. And then it gets done. And you don't have to be frustrated and... You know, who cares if they're frustrated? They're kids. They're, they're our property. <laughs> um, and when I was in that insecure, arrogant, low self-esteem state, I didn't understand why you wouldn't do it that way. But I finally got to the point where I would say, why do you put yourself through this? Not in a, hey, dumbass, why do you put yourself <laughs> through this way? But uh I'm seriously interested. Why do you put yourself through this? And I was curious about your answer. And that's when I started to learn cool things about you. Do like, you remember what I said about that? Or Well, I know that you've often said in situations like that, that you want them to have choices and you want them to make their own choices. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. But it also makes me feel like shit being authoritarian like that. Yeah. Demanding of them. Yeah. I want to, you know... You want to get I want the new I know it's the nuance of the differences I think that sometimes happen between males and females, but I want to remind them that they have responsibility and ownership and autonomy of themselves and these are things that need to be done, like putting your laundry away. I've washed the clothes, I've separated the clothes, you know, like all those things. Your only job is this. But you fold need to it be, and put it away. You need to fold it and put and it away. Why does it take really... a whole week to <laughs> yeah, fold it? Until and put they it get away. the new batch, you know. So I want them, but I want them to understand that, that they don't need to be told to do things. Well, because I think that that's how I felt in our relationship for some time. Yeah, so maybe. So I'm trying to like kind of counter that. Maybe so, but I mean, I also think it's because you're just a good mother and you're right. And, and so what has been cool about, I know we're just using these silly examples about showers and laundry, but what has been cool is by becoming curious and asking questions and trying to figure out why is it you react this way as opposed to telling you what you're doing is wrong, 
I have learned a lot of things. Like, for instance, I have learned that, hey, if we just tell our kids exactly when to take a shower every day and give them no choice in the matter, then someday they're going to leave this house and no one is going to be there to tell them when to take a shower and they might never shower again. Or at least they won't have the skill set, simple as this may seem, to work that into their own schedule and be responsible and have accountability. And so for someone who preaches accountability and responsibility as much as I do, my authoritarian approach to parenting certainly doesn't put much of the accountability and responsibility onto the kids. And so your way is way better. And so see, look what I've learned. But the, this whole change in approach to asking questions, legitimate, honest questions and being curious as opposed to telling you what you're doing that's wrong and why you're getting these bad results, it couldn't have come without, it's only possible through me having a healthy self-esteem. Not arrogance, mm-hmm. not narcissism, but feeling good enough about myself, getting away from the shame cycle, getting away from the guilt, processing all the resentments, doing all the work, and feeling good enough in my own skin that I can ask you what you're doing, and if it's better, I can acknowledge that and be like, that's cool, as opposed to feeling like my way always has to be better because I've just got this just hole in my soul where I feel bad about myself. So everything on the surface or everything that's not related to that, I have to prove that I'm always right. Yeah. I was, I'm just kind of laughing a little bit thinking about when you did start to ask those questions and, and, and because you were curious, but of course I was still holding on and had to, uh, some of my self protection so I was oh, always... Oh, yeah, you, you weren't anticipating was, me asking questions. You were anticipating me telling you what to do. I was do. like, why? You know, why do you want to know? Like, I I thought it was a loaded question. I thought, why is he wanting to know this? Why does he care? What's going to be the backside of it? Um, and I think that um, that has always been there for you. You just never used it, that kind of that questioner and curious sort of part of your nature um so I was really kind of taken back and I think the kids were too a little bit because they were kind of waiting in anticipation for this backlash of I'm going to draw you in enough to tell you you know for you to tell me the truth but then I'm going to correct you so that was something that took a little while to be able to answer you in honest ways too about why I was doing that that was one of the hardest things for me was to be truthful and to feel confident to be truthful and tell you the reasonings of things because I was worried about the backlash. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The defense mechanisms that you develop in active addiction are, they're really, you know, again, this is a universalism. We we see so many people that build these walls to protect themselves from the irrational, the erratic, the volatile alcoholic that they live with. And then bringing those walls down takes a long time. And I think that's good because you as the spouse 
have no control over whether or not I'm going to drink. So those protective barriers that you've developed for yourself, they're important. It's important that they stay in place so that you can protect yourself against potentially my drinking. But you make a really good point. They're also important so that you can protect yourself against God knows what, right? Yeah, whatever I mean, you're Why is this guy there? asking questions now? No, I'm not just going to open up and let him in. I don't trust him. And as you and I have talked about many times, trust is the last, the hardest, the biggest, the most important component of relationship recovery. And it's not something that you're just going to readily give. You did that once, right? When we first met and we started to get to know each other, it didn't take much for you to start to trust me. And then I did all this stuff for years and a decade to violate that trust. And the idea that you would just give that back to me is ridiculous. And so not only do the barriers that you've built, the self-protection, not only does that keep you safe against the potential for me to relapse and start drinking again, it also keeps you safe when in my own recovery, I'm changing and I'm growing and I'm developing and you don't know what the hell to do with me. Like, what is this? Who is this guy? Where is this coming from? Alcoholism changes people. Recovery changes them too. And so all of a sudden you're married to someone then you don't know who they are. And so you having that skill of detachment and those barriers. You know, we, we hear from people a lot who talk about, okay, my husband got sober and I can't reattach. I can't seem to figure out how to reattach. We're still distant. I still, you know, that's okay. That's part of it. Listen, there's penance to be paid here. Alcoholism usually is something that occurs for years and years and years, and the damage is done over a long period of time. And the idea that the recovery takes a long period of time, that's just how it works. And so when people are are saying, you know, gosh, uh, he's been sober for six months and I can't reattach, you know, cut yourself some slack. Um, It's going to take longer than that. And those defense mechanisms are not only there because of the potential for drinking, but they're also there because of the emotional roller coaster that you're on and the changes that can take place and you need to be prepared to protect yourself against whatever it is that comes at you well and i think that this conversation has led me to realize that a piece of the kind of that playing second fiddle and and not being priority was we jumped the gun and tried to prioritize the relationship and i was feeling a big push to prioritize the relationship recovery, I think, before it was ready mm-hmm. because we were not strong enough and healthy enough and we um, hadn't invested enough time in my own recovery to be able to move forward and go there. So those thoughts of you being curious and, and wondering why I'm doing things the way I'm doing it, I have a defense mechanism because I don't trust you, but I also have to find my own security and I have to find my own way and my own voice again. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes people put the relationship in front of the individual recovery. And that's a good, that's a, I think almost, I won't want to say detrimental, but I feel like it could be a waste of time and it could really put you in a backsliding situation where the work that maybe the little work you've done and you try to jump the gun. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't think that there's anything wrong with maybe every once in a while you 
coming together and working on some things because you do have to live communally in your household and and have um, that to caretake from. You can't just be so isolated and there has to be some boundaries, but trying to get too deep into the weeds of, of relationship recovery yeah. before the people are ready. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And I want to make one more pitch for why changing from telling you and the kids how to think, what to do, where to be, changing from that to being curious and asking and trying to figure out what you know what your angle on things was and why you do the things the way you do them one more pitch for why that's so important and just so natural if you can get there when you know i got sober that should have been proof to me how hard it is for people to make change right I mean, nothing you said had much of an impact on me as far as getting me sober. No matter how much you begged or ultimatums or screamed or yelled or any of that. It's hard for people to change. And so I went through what was pretty clearly the biggest change of my life. Going from being a drinker. You know, I was a drinker way before I was a drinker, right? I was a, I grew up in a household where my father drank every day. And so I knew I would be a drinker from the time I was able to process conscious thought. I knew that that was going to be a part of who I was, my persona, my identity. And so taking this piece that's a huge core foundational part of my identity and throwing it away and starting over was the, you know, huge change and the hardest thing that I would do in that way, the hardest personal change that I would ever make. And so the idea that I could just tell you, Sherry, here's how you need to parent. Stop giving them choices. Here's how you need to do this. Here's how you need to do that. Your decisions are bad decisions. You need to make decisions the way I make decisions. It, sh it should have, and it is now, it should have been totally obvious that me telling you how you should behave, that's never going to work. You can't change people. I just went through a decade of ignoring you when you were trying to change me and then it ended up being a change that was necessary and I did make it and I did get through it but it was so bloody hard how can I expect that on a whim I can tell you you're doing something wrong and you're going to change to do it my way it's just you know organization is another good one do you remember when I bought you that Franklin planner Sherry I know how much you you love that. That's Sherry, really dating us, but yes, it was the actual Franklin planner. You and I have different uh, techniques for organization, <laughs> and I was determined that you needed to do it my way, because your way, on the surface, looks a little disorganized. Chaotic. But messy. you get your stuff taken care of, so I don't know why I couldn't just see that and let, let you roll your way. I had to try to make you do it my way. I could tell you a reason, I think. Tell me. Because I'm an Cause asshole. You, no, because you kind of <laughs> grew up in the traditional authoritarian household. Yeah. Where your one of your parents is very A type. Yeah. And so that's the way you My were father. kind of trained. Yeah. To do this, like you do it his way, it's all organized and neat and clean and like you went to your office one time when you worked in an office building, 
with others and you had nothing, nothing on your desk. Yeah. Nothing. Liked it that way. Yeah. Well, the phone. The, the, f- the phone that came with it. No, you took, you had the laptop and you took it home. Oh, at the end and of the you day. put your pen in your drawer and you had no hardly any oh, files, yeah. right. you had nothing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And and that I just was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just want to throw in there that you not only bought me a Franklin planner and told me how to use it, you bought me a book on how to organize everything as a Christmas gift was. Yeah. And Merry <laughs> fucking Christmas. <laughs> Bend over, I'll show you where that's gonna go. Yeah. Yeah. That's like buying you a saucepan for Mother's Day. I now, actually, what are you gonna what are you gonna cook, Sherry? Yeah, I know you would like a saucepan because you like you're a culinary yeah. person, but you get the idea. A yeah, vacuum exactly. cleaner here. I've noticed the house isn't very. You like vacuum cleaners? I okay, do like some vacuum cleaners. We have three three downstairs. <laughs> but anyhow, yes, yeah, so it would be something that would the be. Point. But the point is, obviously, I'm very comfortable in my role, and I would have appreciated help. If there had been a basis and <clears throat> of, sorry, curiosity, and you, you, we could have had a conversation about it. They just always came out of nowhere, in a way, because you would be like frustrated that you couldn't find something on in my area, and you would just dump stuff there and just make it more of a mess. But it didn't bother me, so then it just made you frustrated when really it was you trying to fix your own frustration with me. So it made me feel so wrong being me. Yeah. And that's why when you would start to question, I was very suspicious. What is he doing? Why? And it didn't go well. I mean, I held on probably a lot longer to some of my walls because of just the years of that happening. Yeah. Yeah, it was a transition, but it was, again, I just think it's a necessary one because... It's so important for us, the alcoholic who has found sobriety, to recognize how hard that was to find sobriety and recognize that we can't tell people into changing themselves. It just doesn't work. I didn't I didn't need to always be right. You didn't need to always be wrong. I didn't need to, you know, stomp around here trying to tell you how to live your life. And um when we do that, all we're doing is making the relationship recovery process harder, driving a wedge. Um, and again, it's not only just, Sherry, this is how you need to parent. This is how you need to finance. This is how you need to approach your job. It it also can't be, this is how you need to support me. Let me tell you. I mean, it's different to say, I can tell you what I what I think I need. I can tell you what would feel good. But I can't tell you what to do. Yeah. I, I have to recognize that you have limitations and you have your own way of thinking and you've got your own methods. And if what I need doesn't jive with what you are willing and able to offer, I need to be okay with that. I don't even think it's a matter of recognizing that I have my own needs. It's a matter of respecting yeah. that I have my limitations. And that's where that curiosity piece, I think, came in for you, perhaps, later yeah. into your sobriety. Um, but I think there's nothing wrong with asking, this would be really helpful for me if, if it's within reason. Yeah. Because you have to recognize that your partner's been through a lot and they're distant. Yeah. And they're not able to give 
a lot. And it depends on how long the drinking and how bad it was. And, and in for the drinkers' minds that they sometimes don't even recognize because they were, you know, inebriated for a lot of the times. Right. And, and I think that you and I have mentioned on the podcast before, you became a lower priority to me based on your actions. But I... And I disconnected from you because you weren't the person I wanted to be around anymore. You didn't see that happening yeah. in me because I was still that same kind of person. The only thing that you started to see later on was I was becoming more and more distant. Mm-hmm. But your, I guess, respect for me never really changed or lowered because I was still just being mostly the same person. Whereas you were downgrading. Well, that's funny because... Another side benefit, this wasn't in my notes, this is just coming to me as we're talking. Another side benefit of being curious and asking you questions and trying to learn about the way you do things is I gained a ton of respect for you. There there definitely was a time when I thought, ugh, this is painful to admit, but I thought I was smarter and I thought I had it figured out. And if I could just get you whipped into shape and in line, then we would be this unstoppable couple. And now... I don't view it that way at all. I I look at what you have to offer and I am really thankful that we have held on and the relationship has continued and that you are my wife. And so asking and being curious about your ways, the ways of the sherry have has been a huge benefit to my life. I thought I was doing it kind of to appease you and because my self-esteem was in a good enough place that I didn't have to tell you how to do things. And so I, I had curiosity, but it's, it's developed into being much more than that. It's not just curiosity, it's admiration and appreciation for the way you go about, you know, your business. Even when, like I said, sometimes my needs for support don't align with what you are willing or able to offer. And even in those situations where I know that, you know, you can't give me the thing I I think I need, I still have a ton of respect for that because I know where that's coming from. I know why, you know, you why you feel the way you do. And it just makes me super proud. So there. Curiosity is the way to go. It did not kill the cat. Curiosity is uh, the way to do not only individual recovery, but relationship recovery because um, it's a sign of self-esteem. Just like we say that when you're able to, especially as the alcoholic in sobriety, you're able to do resentment processing, that's a sign, and it doesn't re-traumatize you and you don't get defensive. That's a sign that you're making progress because you can, you know, live live through reliving those experiences, um, you know, in a in a healthy way. Uh, asking questions of your spouse and being genuinely interested in the answers and learning from them and adapting to them and appreciating them is a huge sign that your self esteem is coming back. Yeah. And I just, I know we're wrapping it up and getting the end, but I want to say, like, I think that it's also really important to be curious about yourself and because that's part of the work, that's part of the work of recovery. 
understanding why your behavior patterns are the way they are. How you maladapted to drinking, to like, you know, cover up stuff. Like that self-awareness, I think, helps you as the both sides understand why you're doing things. And then you can appreciate yourself a little bit more and it builds your self-esteem. And then you can also change those things within yourself that you're like, I'm doing that only because this is what I saw growing up. Yeah. I don't have to do that. It makes me feel gross or it makes me feel like that's not really me. I mean, there are a lot of things that I think our kids, our young adult kids do that were not the way we, you know, necessarily showed by example. Nothing bad, but, you know, just some some things that don't, don't make sense to them and so they don't do it that way. Yeah. Which is which is great. Yeah. Phew. That is relieving to see. Because they have comfort within they what do. feels good for they themselves. They feel good enough about themselves that and they can do things. it builds that self-esteem. So, so taking a deep dive into your own curiosity. I know sometimes I have a person that says, gosh, do you just analyze everything? And I'm like, well, to some degree, yes. I, I try to understand why this is happening. Yeah. Because then at least I can have some respect or empathy for the scenario that's going on. Yeah. Better than just shoving it down. Yeah. Do I analyze everything? Yes, with pride. <laughs> That's good. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.